Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Right, with all the relatively bad news out there, I want you to be mindful of the fact that it's relatively bad news. There is ultimate good news. Easter has happened. Easter changes everything. Let's not lose our perspective in the midst of um, all that is going on. I recognize how challenging that is. I live in the midst of those challenges with you. But as Christians, we do not lose sight of the good news even when there seems to be ever more bad news. And so let me be of encouragement to you today um, as a fellow Christian that we are living on this side of Easter. We know the good news. It has profoundly changed um, not only our own personal reality, it has changed reality itself. And so let's let's be mindful that um, it's still Easter. It's still Easter. Uh, Let's be mindful of the power of the resurrected Christ, uh, not only to reign in our hearts and in our lives, but in the world. And I recognize that we right now experience a provisional demonstration of the kingdom of heaven, um, and that you and I are actually provisional demonstrations of what that kingdom is supposed to be like. So let us be living out the kingdom principles today in the midst of the kingdoms of this world where, frankly, bad news reigns. All right. So in terms of church, I know that there are an increasing number of uh, of folks who want to be returning to church. And part of that is because we miss one another. We genuinely miss being together. I get that. Um, I also recognize that for those in church leadership, both clergy and lay, um, there is a motivation to get back to church because they believe that that will re-stimulate giving. So part of the challenge that churches are now facing is economic. I recognize that as well. Um, one one sort of sober, you know, sober, sobering uh, truth is that not every local expression of the church in terms of an institution um, actually like survives long term as a living congregation. I recognize that. Like the, 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 the churches to whom Paul wrote the letters that we are recipients of and that we read in the New Testament, I mean, let's just be mindful of the fact those churches as local institutional realities don't exist anymore. And yet there are still expressions of the local church in all of those places. And so um, as we very soberly consider that there will be many churches across the country uh, that actually permanently close, they, they never reopen following this, uh, this pandemic experience. That does not mean that uh, God has abandoned that place or those people. It means that as an institutional expression of the church, um, that particular local congregation has moved through its life cycle, might be one way of thinking about that. I recognize how painful that is. I have walked that journey with a number of congregations um, over the course of, uh, of my ministry. 
And so my heart goes out to you if that is something that your church leadership is recognizing it may well be facing in the coming uh, months. And we will uh, circle back to that conversation over and over and over again. Um, There's a really great article posted at ChristianityToday.com by Ed Stetzer entitled, What Relaunching the Church Might Look Like. And then there's this end to the headline, over the next three to 12 months. And I think that that timeline is sobering. I think that there are a lot of people who think or have been imagining that the on-ramp back. So I, how long is the on-ramp to the interstate? Like, do you have um, interstate entrances where you live? Some of them are very brief. So, you know, you're going to accelerate very quickly in order to get up to interstate speed in order to, you know, join the flow of traffic. And are there places where you have a really long on-ramp? Um, it's almost like a side road for a long period of time before it actually joins the stream of traffic. It is my assessment um, that the on-ramp back to reopening, particularly churches, particularly large churches, the on-ramp back to reopening in terms of having the kinds of experiences that we are used to having in terms of large-scale gatherings, um, that on-ramp is much longer than many people are are prepared to um, endure. And so I think that we... Uh, we need to be thinking creatively um, about uh, about that approach. All right, one international headline that caught my attention this morning, and I just invite your your prayers in the midst of this. As the as the world uh, is looking for coronavirus scapegoats, yes, that is in the Washington Post headline. As the world looks for coronavirus scapegoats, India pins the blame on Muslims. Um, Religious communities uh, are often the scapegoats, uh, minority religious communities. And so let's be mindful as people who are interested in religious re- religious liberty and religious freedom um, that the desire for religious freedom for Christians uh, it includes the desire for religious freedom for everyone. And so let's be praying today for those being scapegoated in India because of their Muslim faith. Next up, Matthew Hawkins. He's a public theologian, former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. In Washington, D.C., he and I are going to talk about a headline that goes something like this, how abortion, guns, and church closings made coronavirus a culture war. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Uh, welcome to Matthew Hawkins. Welcome back, man. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? Happy Friday. I, uh, happy Friday. Apparently, off air, you have been regaling my producer Paul with um, with food stories. So we might need to hear one of those. That's right. Well, well Paul and I, uh, sometime last year, hit on the fact we both like to cook out and, and grill and all that kind of stuff. So occasionally, we trade each other's uh, text message each other. It's uh, mainly grill, him because uh, he's the interest. expert. I it's just mainly kind me. of. I, you know, I'm 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 a little, a little this, bit, this guy's an expert compared to me, you know? It it might be a little bit of taunting, but uh the more recent one was some surf and turf and turf. Well, it was pork oh. chops and fillets and, and shrimps. All all on the grill. I love it. It's pretty fantastic. I love, um so <laughs> but I had I had I had failed to to taunt my friend Paul here. So, recently, so we did it this yeah. morning. Yeah. There you go. So I did Paul, it now. do you feel sufficiently um encouraged this morning by our brother Matthew? Oh yeah, so encouraged. Yeah. I'm just yeah. thinking of you, Paul. 
I'm that's sure all, you are. That's all I'm expressing. Sure. Strengthening the brother to my right and to my left. I there wish I could that's... share, but we're but we're in a time of quarantine. We well, are. there's that so and about a thousand miles, miles of distance between us, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, anyway. Matt. Let's let's um, yeah. um. We are so glad that the what is raging between you and Paul is not a culture war because we share a worldview. Right. So that will be my pivot to this conversation about how in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic, um, things like abortion guns and church clothing, closings uh, have been, I don't know, brought to the forefront in terms of the conversation. I actually think that's kind of interesting. Tell me what's going on there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think you mentioned there's a New York Times post that uh, cites all the hot um, cultural war topics like uh, abortion and uh, guns and church closings, you know, relig- local religious freedom, domestic religious freedom stuff is flamed up in the context of coronavirus. You know, there's uh, the song that uh, Paul plays from my walk on music. It's a song called Old Jazz Tune Standard called Mercy, Mercy, Mercy by uh, Cannonball Adderley. And uh, it's titled, it's, it was an instrumental, but the, the title of it is basically, you know, how you feel when you can't really say anything else. Mercy, mercy, mercy. And uh, I think that's how a lot of people uh, feel right now, particularly in the church. And uh, like you mentioned, uh, the on-ramp for reopening churches, uh, it's longer than a lot of us, uh, I think, really conceive of, um, as much as we all want to get back to it pretty quickly. Uh, I know, I I know, uh, you know, some church folks are going to want to, you know, gather like normal as soon as their state's uh, you know, activity curfews are lifted. It's probably not going to happen. Uh, and even even when it is uh, legally permissible for uh, churches to open again, uh, in that I think you're going to have uh, people kind of trickling in um, based on their comfort level, um, and probably you know based on the data we see from uh, folks who are contracting the virus uh, in in any given city or or location. Um, but yeah, it's flamed up. Uh, uh, of course, you always you've flamed up the uh, the culture war stuff, uh, and so you have a lot, a lot of the, the familiar um, personalities of of culture warring on, on the left and right uh, chiming in. And uh, like we mentioned last week, uh, the Rahm Emanuel line: "You never let a serious crisis go to waste." It was uh, you know it was attributed to Democrats at the time, um, but Republicans do it too uh, from time to time. And I think this this kind of moment, Carmen underscores my conviction, which is that churches really need to be thinking um, long term about shaping and discipling our political, uh, what I call political consciences. Um, It's in the middle of a crisis like this, like other uh, culture war hot hot points, um, where we need to be able to rely on kind of the attitude that our church has shaped us uh, with an eye towards politics and uh, our culture, uh, now is not really a helpful time to figure all that out, right? Um, we, the time of crisis, uh, we need the church to be active and the answer uh, to to crises and and uh, you know and, and culture cultural warring. Um, we don't need to be kind of left out on a limb and figuring out how to uh, how to how to fly. Um, and uh, I think that's part of what your program, the value of your program is, is you're helping Christians, um, get a handle on this stuff before, um, before crisis, uh, comes to our doorstep. Uh, does that make any sense? How I'm thinking about that. 
Yeah, I I do think that, um, and we talked about this earlier in the week as well, um, the time to decide what you believe about something and how you're going to behave in response to something is not in the heat of the moment. Um, And so we um, we need to be settled, not only in our firm convictions in Christ Jesus, but we need to be settled in what that means as we walk out our faith in the realities of, uh, of what has become a very different kind of life. Uh, Matt, you and I need to take a very brief break. When we come back, uh, let's talk about abortion specifically, um, and then and then let's have a, a little updated conversation about religious liberty concerns here in the United States of America um, and churches sure. specifically. Talking with Matthew Hawkins, you can find him on Twitter at MT Hawk. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Matthew Hawkins, you can find him at MT Hawk on Twitter. Um, let's talk about uh, abortion, um, specifically an Arkansas yeah. abortion coronavirus court ruling. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as we've kind of mentioned recently, uh, a lot of states um, have moved to, uh, you know, the, the healthcare industry in particular uh, has moved to just cease all non uh, non necessary or kind of elective or uh, procedures or procedures that could be moved uh, uh, down the timeline um, if you don't have a serious risk in an imminent risk to your body so I know you know radiologists who uh, they're not doing biopsies uh, and on on people unless they really think there's something that needs to be treated right now uh, my own wife is a as a, uh, a nurse practitioner and her clinics uh, have shut down entirely um, uh, as far as proceed as far as actual medical uh, procedures uh, they're still doing clinic visits via telemedicine all that kind of stuff but the effect of the coronavirus uh, has just led uh, like all those sectors of our of our culture to you know shut down in some way or another so you now enter a situation where um, some states tried uh, to uh, to turn off abortion clinics. Um, we, of course, anyone, uh, abortion is an elective procedure, uh, unless it really is a situation, which is very rare, but does happen, um, where the, uh, the pregnancy is, is threatening the life, uh, of the mother. Um, abortions are elective. Uh, that's the whole point. It's a, it's a right to choose, so to speak, um, uh, from, from the, uh, pro-choice folks. And so you had some state-level action to try to uh, capitalize on the coronavirus thing, maybe. Um, and in some cases, rightly. Look, it, if, if it's nothing else, it is actually a medical procedure. And uh, if abortion clinics want to be considered part of the medical profession, I don't think they should. But if they want to, they ought to be able to play by the same rules that uh, the rest of the medical surgical community does. That aside... Um, they naturally filed suit against uh, folks, uh, states who wanted to uh, tell abortion clinics they had to close uh, temporarily. Uh, but a federal court this week uh, ruled that an abortion or an Arkansas uh, um, ban, uh, and again, they're using the word ban. It's a temporary thing, just like all this stuff is. Um, it can uh, it can go forward. Um, meanwhile, in Texas, you had a situation where uh, they were uh, they were fighting it in the Texas space, um, and even though the Arkansas ruling got backed up in federal um, in the federal court, uh, Texas has la- allowed uh, at the state level to uh, abortion providers to resume. So that's what's going on at the state level. Um, my concern, I think I mentioned last week, is that. 
I just hope, I just hope this activity, um, doesn't form into, doesn't contribute to some kind of uh, poor court ruling down the road um, for the sake of the pro-life movement. Uh, it's one of the, a crisis like a pandemic has the potential to spawn all sorts of, uh, all sorts of unique conflicts that we're seeing uh, that can then uh, contribute to uh, bad case law in the long run. And so you have a unique situations. Um, emo- emotions are, are tense. Uh, people are trying to figure this out on the fly. Uh, and, and in some cases that can create uh, situations where we don't, we don't want to base long-term law on this kind of intense moment. So Matt, let's, um, let's use the last couple of minutes we have left to just give people an update in terms of where we are um, on the church front in terms of the religious liberty conversation. You know, there's a lot of people yeah. arguing that they want to go back to church. Um, sure. We're not going back to church right away. Not, not right away. Um, and uh, I, I think churches now, you know, I think uh, churches, you said before, you know, at the, at the top of the hour, um, you know, we're, we're grieving. Uh, in many respects, probably some some of the smaller churches who are going to have to close permanently uh, after being after being closed for so long and going without uh, going without income. But for the rest of us uh, whose churches are going to uh, reopen, um, I think now you're going to see uh, where pastors and church staff uh, scrambled, you know, several weeks ago to figure out what does this uh, remote thing look like. Uh, now it's now it's a whole other bag of logistic challenges and figuring out how to bring people back together. Uh, I think my church uh, for now is going to stay remote, um, but I think people who want to get back to uh, church as normal. Uh, you know, we, we kind of have to gauge expectations uh, for this, uh, just like we have to gauge expectations for other elements of our communities and culture. Um, I think, you know, tr- I think tr- most churches and pastors are up for the task, but we need to be praying for them and be supportive. Um, uh, you know, church members uh, like myself, we don't always agree on things, uh, particularly when it comes to logistics and things that aren't clearly enunciated in, you know, scripture for us. And so there are going to be dis- disagreements, but I think we need to be uh, people who are extending lots and lots of grace towards our pastors and pastoral staff um, as churches begin to reopen. We already saw in the, on the religious liberty front, um, on the one hand, uh, I agree that churches, as people who gather uh, and, and put ourselves at risk of, um, of uh, catching, catching the virus, uh, it was wise and prudent for us to close our doors and, and try to meet remotely where possible. Um, but you had situations in Kentucky where churches tried to do a drive-in, uh, a driving gathering, which met the states and the, frankly, the CDC's recommended, um, you know, criteria for, <laughs> for gatherings. Uh, but at the time, uh, you know, the, uh, not, not the, uh, I forget whether it was at the state or the, or the local level, but, um, a church was going to be fined. Um, police showed up, uh, and were trying to stop a church from gathering, even though nobody was getting out of their cars. And so I think our friends at first Liberty, uh, have tended to, uh, hit this tone perfect. So on the one hand, uh, if, if, if closures uh, are broadly applied, so if they're broadly applied to restaurants and, um, uh, you know, uh, theaters and all this kind of stuff, uh, if they're broadly, it includes churches, then that's, that's sound. Um, but 
if they prevent churches um, in a way, if they if they take any kind of action or prevent churches to meet in a way that isn't broadly and equally applied to other other gatherings and institutions, um, then that's a that's a religious liberty problem. Uh, they can't single churches out because they're a religious gathering. Uh, so I think you see some of that being meted out uh, in the legal space. Um, but thankfully, I don't I don't see it as widespread. I think most folks are are getting around this and being creative. Matt, as always, uh, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your your perspective, your viewpoint, the way you help us think about the concerns of the day from a Christian worldview. I appreciate it, man. Have a great weekend. Happy to do it. Have a great weekend, Carmen and Paul. Thanks. You too. <laughs> Paul's now going to jealously go try to find something to cook out. We'll be right back. <laughs> All right. I probably could not have designed a better setup for the next conversation uh, than what was just offered. There are increasing numbers of people engaged in what I would call meditative practices um, and doing kind uh, some kinds of um, centering prayers as Christians. Uh, there's a, an incredible increase in the rise of the use of Christian apps that help people uh, relieve their anxiety and and actually, you know, like pray intentionally. So for those of you who um, are wondering here what the connection between what Greg Laurie just said about yoga, Facebook, and pizzerias, lots of people relying on pizzerias today to bring them um, food, churches heavily relying on Facebook today to actually um, communicate the gospel, not only uh, with, with folks who are seeking, but to actually be church in a way right now that we couldn't functionally be church without Facebook. Um, and so actually next up, Chris Martin from Lifeway Social Voice is here to talk about um, actually how Facebook ramped up efforts in order to facilitate churches to be able to do what they're now doing online. So that conversation next here on Mornings with Carmen. So part of um, the reality that we now live in is that the ministry that comes to you over the radio, over the airwaves, and not just you, but to everyone else, um, is a vital link, a vital source, not only of um, positive and encouraging information like you might receive in this hour, but such encouraging programming throughout every hour of every day and over every night. And so we we're seeing an increasing number of people who are hungry for the gospel, and we here at Faith Radio are proud to um, be resourcing you as missionaries um, of this radio ministry. And in order to continue doing what we do every day, you know, the show must go on, we have um, ongoing listener support. So I just want to invite you uh, to consider becoming a part of the Faith Radio Giving family. Maybe that's not something you've ever considered before. But if this is a ministry that you rely on, that you benefit from, that you pass along to others, that you're increasingly using as a resource in these days, a gift of any size is welcome, and a gift of any size is needed at this point. So we're about to enter um, into our formal uh, spring share campaign starting on May the 5th, but you can give any day at any time. Uh, all you do is go to MyFaithRadio.com and hit the Donate Now button. Um, I'd, love to, I'd love to know that you're a part of the Faith Radio support system in addition to being one of the beneficiaries of this ministry. So it's all a big family effort here at Faith Radio. Proud to be a part of that and proud of your listener support. We'll be right back. I have three grandkids and my heart skips a beat every time I get to see them. 
Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. More and more I meet grandparents who become guardians over their grandchildren. For various reasons, parents aren't able to care for their kids and grandma and grandpa step in. I want to encourage you, whether you're the legal caretaker for grandkids or you just get to hang out every once in a while, your influence is powerful. You have the opportunity to make your grandkids feel valued and to grow in confidence. Don't miss out on these incredible occasions. If your grandkids are like mine, they love being together just as much as you do. Find more parenting help from Mark Gregston at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Chris Martin works for Lifeway. He also blogs at chrismartin.blog. Welcome back, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. You have a big fancy title that I can never fully remember. So well, how am I supposed to be introducing you? Uh, you can just say manager of social media at Lifeway. I oversee all of our social media accounts. So that's that's uh, the best way to introduce me. All right. So manager of social media from Lifeway. Welcome, welcome back, sir. Um, okay. I, I have to admit to you when I read this uh, this article um, about Facebook's effort to actually help churches and ministries go live, live stream, um, as you know, as this COVID nineteen pandemic was actually just emerging on the scene. When I even read about, uh, you know, that that Facebook has a global faith partnership, like I was surprised and encouraged. Yeah, um, a lot of people have this false idea that Facebook is like anti conservative or anti Christian. I think in part because it's located in Silicon Valley, which is typically viewed as more like liberal leaning, which is understandable because largely they have advocated for uh, more like liberal public policy in the past or or whatever. Um, But the idea that Facebook is anti-conservative is a little bit, uh, it's not just a little bit, it's big time misleading. Um, Facebook, Facebook would be, let me just explain kind of Facebook's philosophy and that might help listeners understand why they would be silly to be anti-conservative and why they they aren't. They And in my experience, they definitely aren't. Um, Facebook's number one goal as a capitalist company is to make money. Now, they would not say that. They would say they want to change the world by connecting people, basically, is what they would say, which is equally true, I'm sure. But Facebook wants to, is a company, they want to publicly trade on the stock exchange which lot, with lots of investors. They want to make as much money as possible. Now, how does Facebook make as much money as it possibly can? They do that by keeping people on the platform, by keeping people engaging on the platform. That means they want to be a place where people can share content to that's encouraging to people, inspiring to people, gets conversation going, um, is maybe controversial in some respect because for Facebook, you know, all, uh, all PR is good PR as it goes. Uh, it's, it's, um, any, even controversy over a Facebook post, you know, that everybody jokes in the social media world about how Facebook comment sections, you just never really want to even go look there because they can just be so demeaning or so like petty or, or whatever. But a Facebook comment section filled with a hundred comments on a news article is gold in Facebook's eyes, because that means people are engaging. They're staying on the platform. And so conservatives, believe it or not, use Facebook 
a tremendous amount. <laughs> they they're on Facebook. I think it, I I've seen stats before. It's been about a year since I've looked at these stats, but I think a, a, a slightly higher percentage of conservatives are active on Facebook than than liberals as as self-identifying from the American political landscape. So for Facebook to be anti-conservative would be alienating over or roughly half of their user base. It would be silly from a business perspective. And Facebook is a business who cares very much about growing its bottom line. And so they're not going to be anti-conservative because that would be undermining their own their own work. So the idea that Facebook is anti-conservative or anti-Christian is is one that's kind of uh, been a, a false kind of rumor or report that's been made among conservative circles uh, because of people misunderstanding. Because at, at Lifeway, for instance, I mean, we're the largest Christian resource provider in the world, arguably, and we have had ads, for instance, rejected by Facebook. Now, a lot of people who have an ad rejected by Facebook will say, oh, they rejected this blog post that we ran as an ad about uh, being pro-life because Facebook's pro-choice. And it's like, well, no, actually they have this ad policy where you can't run an ad about a political issue unless you have proven that you're an American so that they keep from Russians running ads again. And But but people don't get that far. They just assume my ad was rejected. That means they're anti-pro-life. Anti, uh, they're pro-choice. Exactly. So, so there's there's just all kinds of misunderstanding. So I wasn't super surprised. Actually, the in this article about uh, the Assemblies of God, so a bunch of pastors were provided streaming equipment in the Assemblies of God by Nona Jones, who's the head of Global Faith Partnerships at Facebook. I used to actually interact with Katie Horbath, who is the former uh, woman in the position of Nona, who Katie Horbath back in 2013, 14, we interacted a little bit. Uh, we were in contact about some things going on at Lifeway when she was the head of global faith partnerships at Facebook. So they've had one for probably at least 10 years, uh, almost 10 years. And so Facebook cares very much of the, about that. Uh, I have my own problems with Facebook when it comes to privacy. That's a whole other conversation. But mm -hmm. Facebook does a very good job of engaging its users and providing its users of all faiths, of all political and philosophical backgrounds. Because again, Facebook is not going to let maybe the politics of its leaders or the politics of maybe even the majority of its employees get in the way of its business model, which requires it to reach all people, no matter what their political or philosophical backgrounds are. So we want to pray for um, specifically this sister in Christ, Nona Jones, in addition to being the head of Facebook's Global Faith Partnerships. She and her husband head up a ministry in Gainesville, Florida called Open Door Ministries. She um, She's really passionate about Christ, and she is. Uh, she gathers uh, virtually. She gathers with um, thousands of other Christians who are related to Facebook around the world. Um, they meet to pray and worship together. It's. Um, it, I just found it extremely encouraging. So I wanted to highlight it today, uh, in part, so that um, so that folks would be praying for Nona. Right? You know, there there are people on the front lines of ministry in places that would surprise us every single day in terms of the marketplace. Um, and then I just also wanted to highlight how they are equipping and enabling ministries that would be otherwise unable to stream right now. They they not only, um, you know, give them the platform of Facebook, they actually sent them the equipment so that they would be able to not only live stream their services, but they're encouraging them to fill the other, as she describes, 167 hours of the week 
with uh, encouraging content on the Facebook platform. So I just thought that was good news worthy of lifting up today. Chris Martin and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, I don't know, we're going to talk about other things. Maybe we're going to talk about deep fakes. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm smelling coffee, birds are singing just outside. Here comes your mercy streaming in with the morning light. Continuing my conversation with Chris Martin, manager of LifeWay's uh, social media. There we go. I'm getting better. Um, let's talk about deep fakes, and then I want you to explain to me, uh, while we have time, what a loot box is. Okay, so deep fakes. What's going on in this COVID-19 season with deep fakes? Remind us what they are and then how they're being utilized. Yeah, sure. So um, the uh, deep fakes are – I was actually just explaining to these the students in my student ministry the other night because we were talking about all kinds of random stuff as you do with students in student ministry. Um so we were talking about deep fakes. Deep fakes uh, are uh, how do I best describe this? It's a it's a video, a fabricated video, usually of someone well known, because uh, uh, you tend to pay attention to things that people who are well known say. Um, so usually a video, say, of a world leader, a president, or a leader of a nation, uh, who uh, that that has dubbed audio, either spliced together, perhaps from previous uh, speeches by this public official, or um, maybe it's someone who does a really good impersonation, but basically it's fake audio uh, spliced together or created, and then video that's been edited, manipulated to have the speaker's mouth look as though it's matched up to the dubbed audio. Um, so if you if you want to know what a deep fake is, honestly, you can just go to YouTube and just search like deep fake and there people usually have put some compilations together of some like well done deep fakes that were kind of done for demonstration or for comedy even. Um, and so it, it is kind of funny. I've seen a few that have been done for comedy purposes and it can be kind of funny. Um, but there are a few good examples there on YouTube. The, uh, it's, it sounds like to me that they've been uh, – some countries have been trying to use the deepfake te- technology that we're all afraid is going to kind of become – because it can be really hard to the untrained eye to recognize a deep fake when you see one. Now, obviously, if a world leader says something outlandish, uh, you know, they're, it sounds like they're reading from the phone book or something. You're like, wait, is this real? Like I, I can't believe this is real. Uh, but it sounds like some countries – um, perhaps Russia even is using, uh, attempting to use deepfake technology to run misinformation, disinformation campaigns during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I think it's just important for us moving forward. I have this, I have this, uh, sad, like not prediction that's too strong, but I I'm afraid that at some point we're going to be launched into some, into some massive global conflict or controversy because somebody believed a deepfake video that they shouldn't believe. Uh, shouldn't have believed. So I think it's good to, if you see a video that you aren't sure is correct, or the best, the best thing to do is if you see a video that you agree with wholeheartedly and does not, uh, cause that's what these are. That's what these videos are meant to do. They're meant to deceive, which means the best way to deceive someone is to create a video for a particular audience that tells them exactly what they want to hear. And if you so if you see some world leader who typically doesn't align with what you believe uh, sitting in front of a pod, standing in front of a podium saying exactly what you want to hear and you're like, that's weird. They've never said anything like that before. Uh, I can't believe they would change their views or, or say that. Just double check it, like check yeah. multiple reliable news sources and see if it's been said somewhere else or if you can kind of sniff it out. Right. I mean, if you see an what appears to be an ad 
where Donald Trump is promoting uh, the candidacy of Joe Biden, um, you you ought to say to yourself um, that that is just simply not true. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So we'll take that one as our alarmingly most obvious example. Okay, I would like for you to explain to me loot boxes. So we're going to talk here about gaming, specifically online gaming, and then something inside of online gaming that parents need to be aware of called loot boxes. Fill me in. All right. All right. So um, how can I explain this in like five minutes? Okay. So I, I play video games. I have, I mean, I, I grew, I was born in 1990. So I grew up on Nintendo 64 and I was playing computer games when I was a kid. My dad worked for IBM. So like I had a computer in my house from a young age. I was playing all kinds of games on floppy disk when I was a kid, Sesame Street, hide and seek and all kinds of stuff. So um I play video games. I I know how they work. I enjoy playing them with my friends, with students in our youth group. A phenomenon within video games that really – I don't even know when it technically started. But it was definitely pushed by the mobile phone uh, kind of wave, that the mobile phone game wave that came with iPhones, like with smartphones. So loot boxes in video games were not nearly as popular until mobile phones, the sort of like – free to you know, candy crush or something like that that some of your listeners maybe have played where they're free to download but you can purchase items within the game uh, mobile phones really pioneered that uh, sort of genre or phenomenon and then other video games on your home consoles and Xbox or PlayStation that kids might have in their homes all those games also kind of adapted what the mobile phone game kind of pioneered and so what they are is let's say you're playing a video game And this conversation is relevant because surely kids who are out of school right now are playing more video games than they usually would at this time of year. And so uh, in a video game, uh, there are ways to – there are often stores within a video game just like within Candy Crush or something like that uh, where after either purchasing the video game or if it's a free video game that your child has downloaded and is playing, um, they can go to a store – and purchase what we call cosmetic items for the video game. So perhaps they have a character they play as. They can go to the store and buy new outfits for that character that might cost two or three dollars or five dollars, ten dollars in real money. Uh, many, I'm sure, people who have children who have played games on their iPhone have once or twice had a charge show up on their credit card. Like, where'd this come from? I don't remember buying something in the Apple App Store, and it was like their kid downloading something for a game they're playing on their phone. Um, so that's it's kind of a kind of a plague not to use that term lightly within the video game world video game aficionados if you want to say people who play video games and aren't children uh who kind of have been in the game industry for a while have been ringing the sound of the alarm on this for a long time because loot boxes are those cosmetic items that you can purchase with real money packaged in a sort of like mystery box in a sort of like mm. grab bag Uh, Where it's like, okay, instead of paying $10 for that cosmetic item you know you want, you could pay $30 and get this loot box or this kind of grab bag of a handful of cosmetic items. And there could be one in there that's super rare that all your friends really want. And if you had to buy on its own, might be $50. But if you just pay $30, you can get this mystery box, this loot box, and you might – that might be in there. And so kids have been spending – hundreds or certainly thousands of dollars on these sort of loot boxes and and rightfully so um you know i think a lot of negative 
talk about video games as sometimes unmerited, but loot box loot boxes are a problem that could lead to, you know, sort of like gambling conversations, certainly just a waste of money, uh, if nothing else, even if they don't make kids want to go to Vegas and gamble, which could be a bit of a stretch. Uh, it certainly is a, an unwise use of money and we better off, you know, spend, even if you want to give your kid a budget to spend a few dollars on a game like that from time to time, loot boxes are definitely not the way to do it. And thankfully the gaming community has kind of united together around and against loot boxes well enough in the last couple of years that they're starting to kind of fade out of uh, the more mainstream games that we're trying to push them for a while. See, I knew that I could ask you and you would know and you would help me understand. So thank you so much, Chris, um, as always, for your patience with um, my fairly pedantic social media and online gaming questions. Of course. Happy it, to help. Man. It's so great. Thank you. Thanks for being with us again today. That's Chris Martin. You can find him at Lifeway. He's the manager of all their social media. We'll be right back. All right, I have one uh, one quick walk-off uh, thing here, and that is that the humble phone call has made a comeback. The New York Times is reporting that regular phone calls, voice phone calls, regular pick up the phone and make a phone, make a call phone calls have just exploded in terms of not only the number of them, but the duration of time. So I love to hear the sound of your voice, basically is the point of all of that. And I want you to consider today that God loves to hear the sound of your voice. So you have, if you haven't called on him in a while... He's waiting. The line is open. Um, there's an endless amount of time during which you can talk to him. God loves to hear the sound of your voice. The entire story begins when God speaks, right? Let there be light. Um, and God speaks into our lives through the one who is the word of God, the one who we call the shepherd of the sheep. And the sheep hear his voice and they recognize it and they follow him. Faith comes by hearing. All these great things. We'll be right. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.